everybody. Thanks for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. I want to first start by talking about the latest in uh, Ukraine. A very revealing comment this week from retired General Keith, Keith Kellogg. He is a regular on Fox News and the former national security advisor to Mike Pence when he was vice president. And he testified before Congress about the proxy war in Ukraine. And this is what he said. Ex-Senator, Senator, I believe if you can defeat a strategic adversary and not use United U.S. troops, you're at the acme of professionalism because letting Ukrainians defeat that, it takes, an op- it takes a strategic adversary off the table, and then we can focus where we should be focusing against our primary adversary, which is China at this time. Uh, and I, and I, the concern I've got is I don't think we need to put American troops there, and if we fail in this, we may have to fight another European war, maybe the third time. And, and I don't think we should do that or need to do that as well. So that's Keith Kellogg becoming the latest uh, prominent American uh, now out of power, but previously in power, to acknowledge that we're using Ukraine for a proxy war. He makes a plan. He says that uh, it's the acme of professionalism. Those are his words. The acme of profession- professionalism to uh, use Ukraine to basically uh, bleed Russia because in his words, in his words, that, quote, takes a strategic adversary off the table, unquote, without using any U.S. troops. And then he says we can focus on our real adversary, which is China. So let's Ukrainians, let's use Ukrainians as cannon fodder so that we can take Russia off the table and then get to the main course, which is China. And I think that sums up the prevailing thinking inside Washington very well. Uh, and it's refreshing when you have people willing to admit it, uh, because by contrast, there are members of the Biden administration that insist we're there to protect sovereignty and the rules-based international order. And uh, their allies, like Keith Kellogg, are more honest in their assessment that really this is about uh, taking a strategic adversary off the table and, of course, using Ukraine for that task. So that was a very revealing comment. Another revealing um, development is the visit of the top U.S. military officer, General Mark Milley, to Syria. He just made an unannounced trip to Syria to, out of the blue, declare that uh, the U.S. occupation of Syria, one-third of Syria, is worth it. Now, why is Milley showing up unannounced in Syria to make this announcement now? Well, I think it's possibly timed to the fact that Matt Gates, who's a Republican, has just introduced a measure that is due for a vote very soon to withdraw all, U- all U.S. troops from Syria. And the same people who insist that we're there uh, helping uh, Ukraine to defend the principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity, not one of them have come out to oppose the U.S. violation of Syria's sovereignty and territorial integrity. Uh, All of them are silent when it comes to the U.S. occupation of Syria. And now that's being challenged by a Republican, uh, Matt Gaetz, who also is opposed to funding the proxy war inside of Ukraine. And um, the fact that Milley can go from claiming that we're in Ukraine to defend sovereignty to going to directly visit Syria and saying we're here to stay shows just how little the U.S. cares about sovereignty and territorial integrity. And another window in how much American officials care about, uh, about you know, principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity is their support for sanctions, which has been um, in the spotlight recently because Syria suffered a very devastating earthquake with thousands of people killed. And so the U.S. initially insisted that there would be no change to their policy, that the sanctions would remain. But then under pressure, and I think just recognizing how humiliating it was to be keeping sanctions on a country that has gone through an earthquake, the U.S. relented and eased its sanctions a little bit for six months. Although uh, I think the impact of the sanctions that it waived are still very much in place. It's still very difficult to send money to Syria. Uh, Companies and groups are still wary of of working there because they know what can happen to them. They can get sanctioned by the U.S. And so recently there was a vote in the House uh, about ostensibly to declare solidarity with Turkey and Syria in the aftermath of the earthquake. But the text of the resolution shows what that solidarity means when it comes to Syria. And the the text reiterates U.S. support for sanctions on Syria. 
uh, and uh, support for the Caesar Act, which imposed these harsh sanctions on Syria that explicitly prevented it from rebuilding. And every member of the House voted for this measure except for two people, Thomas Massey and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are, who are Republicans, uh, which I think is just extraordinary. Like, the fact that you can call yourself a, a human being and vote in support of sanctions that are trying to prevent a earthquake, war-torn, earthquake-ravaged, war-torn country from rebuilding is just, to me, it's so depraved. And um, that, that it never ceases to surprise me, no matter how many times it happens. And um, just today, there's an article in the New York Times, uh, which it's, it says this, um, Assad's opponents say the government can now funnel money into the country under the guise of earthquake relief and instead use it for reconstruction of buildings damaged in the civil war. I'll read that again. Assad's opponents say the government can now funnel money into the country under the guise of earthquake relief and instead use it for reconstruction of buildings damaged in the civil war. So this apparently is a concern that under the guise of earthquake relief, the Syrian government is going to rebuild buildings that were damaged in the civil war, which means damage in the dirty war that we fueled with one of the most expensive covert CIA programs in U.S. history. So that's the level of depravity of, depra- of, of depravity that is on open display right now when it comes to Syria. Even after an earthquake, people in the halls of power and in their establishment outlets like the New York Times cannot conceal the guiding sadism. And amazingly, the only... The only dissent from that right now comes from Republicans like Matt Gates, who are calling for a U.S. withdrawal, and from Thomas Massey and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are the only ones to vote against a measure uh, which supports sanctions on a earthquake-hit country. It's pretty extraordinary uh, to witness. Okay, that is my rant, and let's take some calls. Sterling, go ahead. Aaron. Okay. So this is what I hate about journalists. They just, I'm so sick of them doing this. It's so vague that they just say opponents. Well, who are the opponents? I mean, I think we all know who the opponents are, but you need to go ahead and say it. Um, And I was seeing on Twitter after people were watching the morning program, so I don't have to, um, hashtag sheepdog Sunday. And they were referring to Bernie and the squad because of this vote that is so unreal if anybody ever had hope in bernie or the squad i always had hope in bernie but i was kind of not so sure about aoc but um and the squad thing was i just didn't like it because it seemed very gimmicky and just something that they were going to throw out there that everybody could go oh yeah we have something we can cling to and now look at it this is just a joke um i thought interesting also in all of this that blinken was talking about how the united states is champions of human rights and i'm like you just can't you've got to be kidding so what they're going to keep doing is lying to people who like to be lied to. I mean, I just can't believe that. And so people went ballistic. They're like, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, we've killed like 230 million people since World War II. I mean, it's just been crazy. So um, thank you. I really needed this opportunity to vent because as usual, it's been another weekend of just lying and really terrible journalism and just gratitude for you guys because we're screwed if we don't have independent journalism. So anyway, Aaron, always great to talk to you and vent. Thanks, darling. Uh, you're, you're welcome to vent anytime. I appreciate it. Uh, CR. Hey, Aaron. It's good to hear your voice. Thanks. You too. Um, yeah. So I, I, Ah, man, I, I'm right there with you. The the, de, the depravity is, is insane. But I, I, I wonder if you notice a parallel here that I, I, I maybe I'm grasping at straws here, but um, the climate activists and all of the environmentalists are so damn quiet right now on like East Palestine, Jackson, Mississippi, Flint, Michigan. You know what I mean? Like we supposedly have this big, robust environmental uh, movement here and the, the thing, but here's one of the biggest fucking chemical mi- uh, disasters and nothing. It's just like the same thing. Like, oh, is, Israel has a right to defend themselves, but what about Palestine? What about Yemen? You know, like I, I kind of constantly feel like there's we have a, a crisis here that's going on across the board where people can see that Syria is really hurting right now. Syria and Turkey are really hurting, and they still want to somehow justify the sanctions against them that have already been crippling their country for years. But to me, I see this kind of across the board of like this crisis of consciousness and, and empathy for people. Does, does that make sense? 
Absolutely. Um, they're completely cut off from their empathy. I mean, how else can you justify voting to support sanctions on Syria? I mean, not just after a horrible war, uh, but after an earthquake. Um, now, people will say that this resolution in the House was non-binding, so it doesn't like it doesn't reimpose the sanctions that the U.S. has just temporarily eased. But it's an expression of support. It's a message. It's saying we support sanctions on this country that we helped to destroy, even in the aftermath of an earthquake. Um, and that's a political message, and it's it's important. Now, whether it it's actually uh, has a practical impact or not, the the impact is coming comes in the political message, and it. It underscores how hard it will be to change policy in the U.S. when even after an earthquake, these elected <laughs> representatives can't be moved to uh, oppose sanctions that prevent Syria from rebuilding. Um, it's uh, it, it blows my mind, honestly. I, I um, you know, like when Madeleine Albright said that you know we, we think the price is worth it, you know, to kill all those kids in Iraq with our sanctions. There was a genuine backlash to that, and she had to apologize. Well, now her attitude that we think the price is worth it is the dominant mindset in Washington among both parties. And no one has to apologize. And the only people who somehow stand out, I don't know why Marjorie Taylor Greene and Thomas Massey voted against it, but they did. And uh, it's just they're so they're the fringe of the Republican Party and they're the only ones. Um, It's extraordinary. I I just I mean, to, to me, it just seems like it's it's across the board. You know yep. what I mean? Like our, our Western values, quote unquote, you know, our, our liberalism and all because it, it's it's for all for not like all of the wishy washy. We give a shit about the people of Ukraine. You know, we we Israel has a right to defend themselves. It's like you don't believe any of that stuff because then otherwise, you know, we would want to help Syria. We would want to help Yemen. We would you know stop doing all these things. We would you know if we really cared about the environment, we would everybody would be up in arms about East Palestine right now. In Ohio, man, you know what I mean. So I feel like it's not just the depravity that's in in Washington. It's not just the 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 the, the dysfunction of our system, which clearly is it's a joke to even call it a democracy. But I really feel like there's something wrong with the. I hate to sound like spiritual and hippy dippy, man, but like I feel like there's something wrong with the hearts of Americans, man. Like, like I really do. I feel like this is this is more than just like systemic issues with politics and cronyism. Don't you do you feel like there's something more at heart here where we could see these people suffering in these countries and 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 continue to not only do nothing, but also to do harm. You know, I definitely think that when you, when you live in the heart of the empire, um, there is going to be some sort of uh, spiritual crisis because, I mean, th- this country's government and its corporations have so much impact around the world and cause so much harm. And so accordingly, that, that is going to be absorbed by its own population uh, on some level. Um, that's just the rule of nature. I think that like when you put out energy into the world, you're going to absorb something back and it's going to come back in a, in a, in a, you know, in a different form. But of course, like we can, but, and, and it's all directly related because the, the denial of basic services to people here at home is a way to keep the hegemon going, uh, because people aren't sufficiently, uh, uh like if people don't have health care, they don't have stable jobs, they don't they don't have livable wages, they're not gonna have the time or the energy to be able to organize and actually be informed about what their government is doing abroad. Yeah, so, why, why should I give a shit about Yemenese children when I can't yeah, even pay my bills? Exactly. Yeah, and, and and that makes sense. You know, I I understand that. Um and, and also we're subjected to so much propaganda. Uh, it's just, it's unbelievable the levels of propaganda that we face. It's the most sophisticated propaganda system in the world. You know, if you live in, you know, China or uh, Russia and you see the government saying something, odds are, you know, that's, that's the government saying it, that's government propaganda. But here there's no really state media. It's all, uh, it's, you know, uh, ostensibly free media being able to say whatever it wants, but it operates within a very strict, um, system that only allows debate within very constrained lines, which gives the illusion of, of freedom. And so it, it's a system that works very well for those in charge. Thank, thank you for your comments, Aaron. I appreciate your time. Have a Thanks wonderful Sunday. You too. Okay, Zach, hi there. Hey, Aaron. Um, I'm wondering, you know, talking about this propaganda, you know, machine, 
where's like information from Ukraine, like from the ground coming from? I, I think you've interviewed a few folks that are like reporting from inside there because it's just like when articles are coming out saying, you know, recently that, um, you know, attitude and and uh, what like motivation within the ranks ranks of Ukrainian military is really, you know, struggling and folks, are, you know, there's like re- reporting on, you know, how Ukrainian fighters are just like fleeing the country or fleeing their posts or, you know, it's their, their recruitment is, you know, really is challenging, like where, you know, and then, and then saying that Russia is committing war crimes, you know, and like, where, where's like more accurate information coming from, you know, within Ukraine? That's a hard question because during war, I mean, everybody engages in propaganda, whether it's Russia or Ukraine, you know, um, and then the U.S., because it's so invested, uh, you know, U.S. media is, is generally very biased towards the U.S. line and hiding from people the truth. But, you know, sometimes in like the major U.S. outlets, you'll get reporters who are honest and who will at least allow some acknowledgement of, of the reality buried deep in their articles. Um, but it really depends. You know, you have to – it's very hard and it's like there's no – I can't point you like to one source that I think is like um, – is offering impeccable reporting because because I'm not there so so I can't judge but you have to just find the people who you trust yourself and you know try to double check whatever you can but it's it's difficult um, I'm trying to think of who I follow uh, someone said in the someone said in the comments actually just now Duran yeah the Duran I, I I like those guys but they're also not there you know um, so I, I don't know um, but yeah they're they um, I listen to them too sometimes, and and they seem to be very knowledgeable. Um, but the, that that is a definitely a good channel. Um, I mean, the, there's uh, plenty of, um, of 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 YouTube channels that cover the war in Ukraine. It's just it's hard for me to vouch for anything because I just you know I'm not there on the ground. Yeah. Um. Well, not as many questions from me this week, but I appreciate you doing what you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay, Chris. Hey, what's up, Aaron? How's it going? Hey, um, yeah, I wanted to to um, ask you about the propaganda as well because you now I've been thinking about it, like how to, because it 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 just seems that the war is so propagandized. It it's it's really incredible. Um, I was only a teenager during the um, Iraq War, and. So I don't I don't really remember exactly how the propaganda worked, but I I, I kind of remember that like I think 2006 was the year where it seemed to kind of switch. Like I think that's that's when I kind of noticed at least that um, uh, in in the media at least that something in the propaganda broke down and 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 people were criticizing it a lot more. But um, yeah, I, I just wanted to ask you like just for like because I because I think you've been looking at this longer like how how do you think the propaganda framework um changed between between then and now because it seems like this time it's even it's even more sophisticated or just or just more pervasive and and um and just stronger i don't know uh so how has the propaganda changed from the iraq war till now to the to the ukraine war yeah yeah it it just seems different to me i don't know well, you know, like one one uh, change is that back then you had some U.S. journalists who refused to go along uh, and they got fired from their jobs for it. Like so Phil Donahue had a show on MSNBC and he was taken off of the air because he was voicing criti- he was voicing criticism of the drive to invade Iraq. And Jesse Ventura, who, who's not a journalist, but he's a media personality, um, he was about to launch a show on MSNBC and they gave him millions of dollars and uh, once they got word from him that he was you know, going to be critical of the war, they basically bought out his whole contract and said, you know what, we don't need you to come on. We'll just buy you out. And they gave him millions of dollars to not to ever appear on the air. But now, though, there's no one who's lost a job because there's just everyone who has a conscience has been filtered out. <laughs> so there's no one to fire, you know, um, which is pretty extraordinary. And um, It, it, it you know, feels like to yeah. me like the media is – because. Cause, cause, cause like, cause what you're talking about, like that's the legacy media. That's, that's like the, the television stations, the newspapers and stuff. And, 
it feels like today those like their job is not even necessarily to um to 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 distribute information anymore it's more to like curate information that comes through digital media it, it's it's like it's almost like i i don't know it, it just feels different i don't know the structure is different uh yeah um you know another difference and this is sad but it's true uh back in the iraq war you had progressive outlets like democracy now challenging the drive to invade iraq you know being critical of U.S. intelligence claims not accepting them on faith. And today you watch Democracy Now! And, and thankfully not all the time, but a lot of the time, they parrot proxy war propaganda. And um, that's a, a reflection of what's happened to the progressive left. Is like, is especially because of Russiagate and the Trump era, a lot of, some progressive outlets have been co-opted into parroting the national security state, uh, the, same, the, the same entity they used to challenge consistently. And so that's another difference. It's like there, there's been a huge effort to enlist progressives in um, this proxy war. And that's why there's no one in Congress on the progressive side standing up to it. And so it's a fascinating comparison. Um, I'd like to think about it more. And it'd be good to do a comparative study between uh, Iraq and, and Ukraine because um, things are very different. It, it's, actually, it's actually worse when you think about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, because at least back then there was some dissent allowed. But now there's just there's nothing. Yeah, it, it's crazy. Thanks, man. Thank you. Okay, PJ. And PJ, if you're there, there is a mute button in the bottom left. There you go. Nope, you're gone. Okay, Matthew. Hey, Aaron. How are you doing? Hi there. All right. Um... Uh, for Zach, I wanted to say, um, uh, if if you look up uh, Eva K. Bartlett on uh, Twitter, she was on the ground for a while in Ukraine. I don't think she's there anymore. But specifically for what he was talking about with like evidence of uh, Ukrainian war crimes, uh, she was doing a lot to specifically look at um, uh, butterfly mines that had been deployed. She was in Donbass, so... She documented a lot of uh, leftover butter butterfly mines from the previous bombing campaigns from 2014 up until the, the Russian invasion. <clears throat> and she also aggregates a lot of stuff on her Twitter of uh, other like videos coming out of uh, Ukraine, of Ukrainian uh, war crimes. So that'd be something I'd look at. And then uh, I was just wondering, Aaron, uh, your thoughts on like, I live in like a red county, and when I talk to people, uh, I have like a discourse-oriented question. But yeah, when I talk to people, they tend to say like, uh, uh, people seem to be pretty populist. They have like reasonable positions, but you know, obviously in a red county, they lean Republican and Trump and stuff like that. But it, a lot of the points they'll make are like, well, like you know, like I like Trump. He didn't start a new war. And uh, I was just wondering if you think it's worth, like, because I know a lot of my progressive friends that I know think it, you shouldn't concede anything <laughs> when it comes to Trump, uh, which is very funny. It kind of also plays back into what you guys were talking about. It seems like Trump created a level of party discipline for Democrats never before seen. Like, just the idea of Trump, now everyone's on the same page, whatever it is. But, but I was thinking, do you think it's like, because I've seen real movement from people from just like conceding that and saying like, yeah, Trump did some stuff that I like and agree with. I, I think he could have been better though. Do you think it's worth doing that uh, discourse back and forth with people or? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, uh, you can't avoid being honest and it's honest to say that Trump uh, was less militarist than, for example, Obama uh, and then Biden. Uh, that's just true. Now, of course, he was terrible. His policies were terrible. Um, he appointed a bunch of neocons who made all sorts of horrible moves, um, caused a lot of misery around the world from Syria to Venezuela. But it's true he didn't start a war. Uh, he did help, I think, fuel the war in Ukraine. I don't, uh, his policies contributed to it, uh, tearing up arms control treaties, 
increasing military support to Ukraine rather than push for the implementation of the Minsk Peace Accords. But um, and I think he he almost started a war with Iran when he killed Soleimani. But, um, you know, luckily, uh, you know, uh, that ended after Iran retaliated and the U.S. didn't go further. But, yeah, no, I, I also think it's fair to concede that he didn't start a war and he invaded far less country. I mean, like like Obama invaded uh, Libya. He did a dirty war in Syria. He um, did the surge in Afghanistan. Trump tried to withdraw the, the U.S. from Afghanistan and from Syria. And he was undermined. And I don't think you can shy away from admitting that. I'm just also not going to ignore that Trump had just some horrible policies that I think um, are a big reason why we had the war in Ukraine. But at the same time, if he was in office, would the war in Ukraine have happened? I'm not so sure. Um, possibly he would have woken up to the dangers. And unlike Biden, he would have made an actual effort to avoid the war, whereas I think Biden encouraged it. All right. Thanks, man. Well, thanks for having me. And yeah. I'll keep all that in mind about because, yeah, that is where it goes. Like if once you concede the like, sure, you didn't start a new or whatever it is, it always comes with a bunch of caveats. And yeah. That's really true. Yeah. Easy. yeah. Thanks for the call. Okay. Next caller is Memory Hole. Hey, Aaron. Uh, it's Hi Serge from Ukraine. Hi, Serge. Good to hear from you. Yeah, good to hear you too. So just wanted to let you know that uh, I'm still here and I'm still alive. Yeah, good. Uh, good. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to add something about how things are going on here. So uh, the draft situation is pretty bad. And, you know, ever since they started this uh, meat grinder in Bakhmut, you really have to keep your eyes peeled because, uh, well, I think you've seen a lot of videos from Odessa and other cities with people getting dragged and pushed into buses and shipped uh right to the front lines without any training in many cases you know there have been a few scandals even in the official news with the uh, guys receiving like one week training and then sent right to the front line and dying the same day and uh yeah so so far so good you know we're still struggling and um I'm still really scared of the moment once the U.S., you know, gets tired of this um, proxy war in Ukraine, once they achieve their goals of weakening Russia and pulling out of Ukraine by stopping all the finance support of Ukraine. I'm really scared of what's going to come to this country because obviously our economy is completely dead. Uh, a lot of people have died, like uh, even I uh, have a few acquaintances of mine that I, I knew and uh, they have died somewhere in Lugansk about a month ago. And yeah, I think the situation is really dire and just uh, to wrap it up, uh, you know, I've been reading a lot of uh, stuff from different good analysts and uh, they have some predictions that I, that I think seem pretty plausible with, you know, this conflict coming to an end in the next few months uh, with uh, Putin essentially taking Bakhmut and maybe some other small cities in the Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast. And then declaring that uh, his special operation was a big success, that they have taken all the regions that they, they wanted to take. You know, they, they've secured the uh, protection of Crimea and the water supply, and uh, they will agree to pull out their forces uh, from the occupied territories. And after that, uh, well, we'll have the Chinese peace plan. Uh, 
with well basically the whole world will look at this situation like well here you can see that russia is willing to take the diplomatic route they've taken out their forces and now we have to now we have to sorry and uh, now we have to Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, and so, and uh, yeah, then they will implement the Chinese peace plan of basically saying that here you can see that Ukraine is basically attacking Russia and that's not good. So we'll have the peace negotiations then. Uh, yeah, and basically I forgot everything I wanted to say, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that's it. <laughs> well, hey, Serge, it's so good to hear from you. And thank you so much for calling in and giving us an update. I, I've been wondering how you're doing. And so it, it's great. It's great to hear from you. Um, are things okay where you are? Are, are you near any fighting? Uh, well, you know, we have uh, missiles falling in our city every now mm. and then, but it's pretty okay. You know, we have, even have electricity now. So it's pretty good. The only thing is that you have to sort of keep your eyes peeled and not get drafted into the meat grinder because people are really anxious to <laughs> throw as many people as they can. You know, they have, there have been so many corruption scandals in the Ministry of Defense, you know. They've unearthed a lot of illegal spending um, uh, food supplies of our military when they purchase purchase food at uh, you know incredibly high prices. And the the latest scandal was with military canteens which were purchased at ten times the price that they're worth, and no one no one has taken the blame. You know, it's complete circus and obviously it's coming to an end eventually. And we'll see what happens next. But I think that this whole situation in Ukraine is coming to an end in the next few months and then everything will shift into the Asia Pacific region where where we'll have the real war with between China and the US. And um Another thing that I'm really worried about is uh, the fact they might blow up the underwater optic fiber cables in order to shut off all communications between the US and Europe. But we'll see what's gonna happen next. Anyway, thank you for everything that you do, Aaron. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Serge, for calling and giving us an update. It's really great to hear from you. Uh, stay safe. Thank you. All right. Uh, Zach. Hey, Aaron, I'm sorry, sorry I joined back in when there was no one else in line, but I know there's a couple other people, but I just thought of a few more questions, that, or like one or two more questions, that's okay. Uh, one question, yeah. One question, yeah. Just um, the just on your book, it's coming out soon, probably. Uh, it's coming out hopefully by the fall. Uh, I'm, I'm doing my best. It's it's a big topic. It's Russia Gate and it's a Ukraine war, so it's a lot of material to go through. But uh, I'm working as fast as I can. Cool. Well, yeah, looking forward to that. I think maybe my question is just kind of because you you are really just an expert on this subject. You know, after the coup, right? Then when uh, new the call leaked about Newland picking Yatsenyuk. Um, in uh, Ukraine, and I, I can't remember how long. I mean, how, I'm not sure how long uh, he was president then. But remember, there there was like a couple of pictures. I think this was your reporting on uh, Substack that you directed me to after last week of what I was reading. You know, when like John McCain came to speak in Ukraine, um, and there's like a picture of this guy. You know, these these folks like oh I can't remember their names, but like they were you know leaders of these this far right um, movements in Ukraine. And I just wonder like. You know, what are you what where are they now? You know, are they fully in the government, you know, advising Zelensky and, you know, what are they saying? And like what, you know, what's the, you know, update on on this on those those actors um, 
and and how large are you know how large is their role and you know wh- what are they doing now well uh so if you listen to the newland call um she talks about a guy named Klitsch, Klitschko. He's now the mayor of Kiev. And oh, wow. the other guys, Yatsenyuk, uh, I don't know what he's doing now, but he's still, I still, he's still, he still makes media appearances. And the other guy, Tony Brook, who she says he shouldn't be in government because he's too much of a wild card. What she means is he's a, he's a Nazi, basically, and so it wouldn't look yeah. good to have him in the government. I don't know what he's doing now. Um, but, you know, like, like you have people like um, – uh, the, the co-founder of Right Sector, uh, whose last name is Yarush, he's the guy who said that if Zelensky makes peace with Russia, he'll hang from a tree. <laughs> and uh, two years after he said that, he became a top, he became an advisor to the commander of Ukraine's armed forces. So that that shows the um, the influence of the far right inside Ukraine is that you can threaten to kill the president if he makes peace. And after that, you can get appointed to a top military advisory position. Now, apparently, the Ukrainian government says that that, that that appointment was withdrawn. But the fact that he was appointed in the first place just speaks to the impunity there is for the far right inside of Ukraine. And, um, you know, I that would be an interesting project to see where all these central figures in the Maidan coup have, have ended up. And I, I do think they still have a very strong political influence because, you know, Zelensky ran on a peace mandate and... As I wrote about in my most recent article, he abandoned it. And I think that wouldn't have happened if not for the influence of Ukraine's far right with U.S. backing. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Okay. Neoliberal tears. Uh, howdy, Aaron. Um, happy Sunday, Sunday morning. Um, you know, when you were talking about... Uh, democracy now and it just brought up um an intrusive memory uh i had from uh 2016 i remember watch, watching it low key, like on the on the low key uh at my cubicle job in new york and you know watching when they had like uh you know the jill stein debate so they would like um showed parts from the Trump and Hillary debates and they would like cut to Jill Stein on a, (laughs) on a podium. And I just remember being so excited and, you know, and, and feeling good about their coverage at that time. And it's so sad that like, we don't have that anymore. You know, they, they really have shifted. Um, And I was going to ask you if you remember, like when they had Julian Assange on in 2016, they brought on some like weird, like, I want to say Russiagate or journalist before Russiagate really became a thing. Um, his name was like Alan Nar- Narn or something. And they, yeah. they like brought him on to like to grill, Assange. To, to grill Julian. Yeah. Look, uh, Alan, Naren was... is, Alan Naren is a really accomplished journalist who's uh, done a lot of really important stuff. He, he In the 1980s, he reported extensively on the dirty wars in Central America and did a lot of really important work. And he's also done similar work in Indonesia on the um, on the uh, atrocities committed by the Indonesian military. But uh, in 2016, you know, after Julian Assange released the DNC emails, a lot of people turned on him. And um, so, so, yeah, uh, they kind of ambushed Julian with this interview by bringing on Alan Nair to sort of grill Julian and accuse him of taking part in a Russian operation and accuse him of being in an alliance with Trump. And I, that was really unfortunate. Um, and it's, you know, uh, um, it's one of many ways in which I think DN, uh, DN has changed uh, in the last, in the year since I left. And um, what can I say? It's, um, you know, I think thankfully they're still very good on some issues. Like they've kept the, their tradition alive on uh, immigration, um, like the rights of immigrants, uh, you know, prison issues, you know, like. Uh, like on domestic issues, I think they've stayed consistent, but on foreign policy stuff, on some issues, not everything, but on some issues, they've been totally co- uh, just duped by the propaganda they used to challenge. And it's, it's been, you know, I've been, I've been vocal about it and it's, uh, it's very surprising to me still. I'm wondering if part of that is maybe they somehow bought into the idea that because they platformed obviously this is wrong, but like, because they platformed Jill Stein as much as they did in 2016, that they were somehow complicit. And maybe they were trying to sort of show the mainstream, like, no, we really are like, you know, I don't know. But like, 
Yeah, that shift, I feel like I was going to ask you if you thought it was a gradual one towards Russiagate or, or was it like an kind of like an all 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 at once? Well, all at, yeah, yeah it, it was two things for me. Uh, um, I left in February 2016. So uh, and so Russiagate hadn't happened yet. But even after then, I you know, looking back at it now on Syria, they, whereas they, you know, whereas you know, like Syria divided the left, right. Or some parts of the left. And, um, you know, Syria duped a lot of people, like including myself. I mean, I fell for some of the propaganda that was used to justify the Syria dirty war, but at democracy now, we always, I think platform both sides. But after I left, I just noticed that they started only going towards one side and going way to the extreme of like basically parroting what the state department was saying and only, only interviewing people who would parrot what the State Department was saying. And when someone dissented from that, they got banned. So Stephen F. Cohen, one of my mentors, he was he was basically uh, banished from democracy now uh, after mid-2017. Uh, so f- for the last three years of his life, he, he was never on again. And um, so I think it was a combination of getting them getting duped by the Syria dirty war stuff. And also, uh, and then Russiagate came along. And Russiagate, you know, ended up, that's a pathway to being duped by all sorts of other propaganda is because if now you're blaming uh, Russia for Trump, it means anything else that involves Russia, you're probably going to be susceptible to. And that's what happened um, with uh, the Ukraine proxy war as well. So um, I don't know the exact reasons. And I, I don't think it's because of like corruption. I just think it's because we have a really powerful propaganda system that creates incentives for people to go along and, and it requires a lot of effort to challenge. And, uh, you know, if you don't take the time to really apply your critical thinking skills, you're going to get duped. And I just think that's what happened here. Yeah. I mean, I'm a nobody person, but like, I, I agree with you. I think that's, that feels to me like it, it, it feels to me like it wasn't like a malicious, like, all right, we got some, we got a million dollars. Like, no, yeah, no, no, let's no, do this. Like, I totally agree with you. Um, but thank you for, um, you know, sticking, sticking to, uh, to the truth and all of hey, that. No problem. It's uh, <laughs> I enjoy doing it. Thank you for the call. Okay, Brady. What's up, Aaron? I'm wondering what you think the f- fastest way to make this happen might be. Like, is it possible for us to impeach Congress and like just do a do over? Like, I, I don't think we can wait for the next election to solve this problem. You know. Um, and I'm just kind of like, what do we really, what can we as Americans really do? I think like uh, outside of a general strike, you know? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we could, we could, it's springtime. We, it's a really good time for all of us to start growing our own food and filtering our own water and kind of becoming survivalists, I think. And if we had that kind of mentality, it would make it a lot easier for us to support things like a general strike against war. And so I think we need to get the anti-war people teamed up with the preppers and see if we can put an end to this if we can't do it through, you know, voting or otherwise. But what do you think might be some creative ways that we could put an end to this uh, faster? You know, that's not my lane. I, I don't I, – I, if I knew the answer, I would, I would, I would share it. But I, I just don't – that's – I just try to focus on giving people the facts – that I think are important. And, um, that's what I focus on. I, you know, I, I do think if there was more protests, I do think that that would have an impact. And, um, you know, like protesting politicians does, does work, I think. But right now it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. Uh, even when the left or some people on the left try to organize a protest, uh, there's other people on the left who don't want to take part because they, because they don't like some of the participants, as we saw recently with Rage Against the War Machine. So it's it's a challenge. I think we could start with protests, and uh, who knows what could go on from there. Right on. Thanks, Aaron. I'll let you know if I... Thank you. Th- thanks, Brett. Thank you. Okay, Gator. Hey, Aaron. How you doing? Hi there. Um, I've just got two two things I'm curious about um, to, to run by you. First is about the Syria-Turkey situation and how that is now potentially blowing back or will blow back against the West because um, on the one hand, Syria is uh, an untenable position for any for anyone in the West to explain why the US is there uh, in illegal oc- in occupation. So if that 
takes increasing amounts of scrutiny in the run up to the to the to the election, and then it actually gets significant airtime by any or some of the candidates, then the Dems are going to have a hard time spinning a narrative and direct questioning there. But Turkey, on the other hand, is an interesting setup because it's now holding, you know, it's a key player in the veto of new NATO members. And it's basically running uh, the line between the East and the West because it's um, essential for running the Bosphorus Strait um, and also for um, gas, gas and oil transfer. And it's looking to, or, or, or gas, sorry, and it's looking to expand its position as a gas hub from from Russia, you know, in anticipation of post-war scenarios. Um, and also, um, you know, as a as an inherent NATO member, it is it NATO kind of has to take into account some of this. So it's playing quite a dangerous game. But because they are both under extreme difficulty with the um, the earthquake, and now if you look at what's happening in the Middle East. The Middle East is now actually starting to come together because, you know, you've got tripartite um, attempts to resolve things in Syria between Turkey, Iran and, and Syria. And also you've got um, the basically the slow reformation of Middle Eastern politics, um, including de-dollarization. I mean, what are your kind of thoughts about where that might play out in the next few years, particularly how it gets used in the election? Uh, it's a great question because Syria is the military occupation that nobody wants to acknowledge. Uh, it's never discussed. Right now, it's getting some attention because Matt Gates put out a resolution to end it. But otherwise, we don't talk about how we're occupying one third of Syria and stealing its oil. And uh, if Republicans were smart, they would make this an issue and they would press Biden to explain why he's putting U.S. troops in danger by keeping them in Syria uh, and, and like what what is the mission. And of course, Biden will say, well, like we're there to fight ISIS. But as I've reported that the U.S. is not fighting ISIS at all, they're letting Syria and Russia fight ISIS while they basically sit on their military bases and steal Syria's oil. That's why they're there, uh, as Trump admitted. So uh, it could be an issue in the election. But um, look, I mean, we saw what happened to Tulsi Gabbard when she tried to talk about Syria during the last presidential primary. Everyone called her an Assadist and she was chased out of town. And uh, so I don't expect any Democrat to make this an issue. It's only going to come from from, you know, fringe Republicans. Maybe Trump will talk about it if he's disciplined enough. But I, I think I don't think that's a safe bet. Yeah. So um, your the, the Gray Zones article um, on on Trump's interesting legacy of policy um, actions, there, there was a lot of stuff in there that I didn't know about. Um, is is where I think is going to be a, an indicator of what's going to happen in the next election because I think that um, basically, as you say, the Republicans now have this almost a very long list of target points to attack the Dems with in open warfare in a, in any primary debate. And um, Trump, if you look at what Trump's now doing, he's ahead of the curve, setting out his stall, and he's done at least three or four five to six minute long videos on. And basically, he's 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 positioning his um, run around the obvious um, populist reactions to uh, COVID. So that's freedom of speech, anti-propaganda, anti-corruption, um, the the war, essentially end it. Like look how look how I did uh, my track record with problematic world leaders like Putin and um, Kim Jong Un. You know, I'm the guy to bring this war to an end. And then basically in Syria, I mean, he's already saying as a, as a president, I never started any new wars. And what did he do in Syria? Well, OK, look, that's not entirely true. He, he armed up Ukraine and he fired cruise missiles for a lie at uh, Syria and he allowed movement towards that environment as well. So he, he is bullshitting, isn't he? But he has this almost, um, very, in my opinion, he has um, a bit like the first time round. He was running a very everyman economics politics kind of thing which rung home with a lot of people this time round he actually has a mixture of um semi-truthiness on his backstory plus also literal open open attack vectors against the democrats 
Now, I, I think that a lot of Republicans will pick up on this eventually. They'll watch him set his, his stall out. They'll pick bits of it as well for themselves. And then 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 all of them together will be up, will be fighting the Democrats on these fronts. And I don't think the Democrats can really actually win in open warfare, trying to counter lie these things. That's personally what I expect yeah, anyway. Peter, I think you make a lot of sense. Um, if Trump is smart, he will once again run as the sort of anti-neocon candidate. And, he, you know, as you said, he is. He's he's saying all the right things now. But the, the, pro the problem I have, if, it's hard to square that with his actual policy choices and who he appointed. I mean, Mike Pompeo, yeah. like, one, one, like one of the war biggest neocons there is, was the Secretary of State. Nikki Haley was his UN ambassador. John Bolton was his national security advisor. So, yeah, so was H.R. McMaster. But we'll see. Um, I do think... He he's a good con man and he knows what he's plugged into, you know, what a large segment of the, of the population is feeling, which they're tired of these wars. And he's going to once again, the, the Democrats have given him a huge lane to once again claim the mantle of being, you know, anti-intervention. And I, I do think he will try it and probably and DeSantis might follow suit, uh, even if DeSantis, I think, is a lot closer to the neocons than, than he admits. Thank you, Gator, for the call. No worries. You too. Okay, Daphne. Hello, Nikki. Hi there. Um, hey, Aaron. Thanks so much for your work. Um, I was thinking about that, um, how shocking that conversation was between Matt Duss and Agatha Damaris. Um, and uh, how she described sanctions like, I don't know, she did it in like such a polite way, but she was saying such crazy things. And uh, Matt, Matt Oh, Matt Dust said, um, said like, oh, that's just a clickbaiting clip. But I actually heard the whole, the whole thing and it, it really, <laughs> she never really addressed the moral issue. Um, and, uh, I was wondering, so the next, uh, the next one that's coming of that series of talks that I guess Matt Dust is organizing is with Spencer Ackerman. Um, and I, I wonder if you you know his work and if you know like more of his um, leanings uh, towards Ukraine and uh, I don't know if you think something good will come from those talks. Maybe, <laughs> um, yeah, that's one question. Look, uh, um, Spencer Ackerman, uh, it, he's done a lot of work, uh, so he's been productive, and I I respect that. Um, and uh, what I know, though, is that he was a Russiagate dupe. Um, mm. He worked for the Daily Beast, and he pushed some really stupid Russiagate stuff. Like, uh, the, like he pushed the idea that like Russian social media operations reached millions of Americans and had some impact on the election. Um, so he got caught up in that. And uh, I know he also I'd never seen him say anything about Syria anything about the CIA dirty war. And so I don't expect him to, to push back on, on that death, unfortunately. Uh, and I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to, I've never, I've never, I've met him once, I think, so I don't know him very well. So I, I don't want to make assumptions about him, but well, I am making assumptions about him, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, the, you know, I'm, he seems like a nice guy. I just don't think he's aware maybe of some of the issues that, you know, that, that people like us are. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I just, um, I ran into him cause I was reading some things in the guardian of like, of, you know, way back the guardian before they also fell into Russia gate and all that. Um, uh, and he, he had a lot of, um, he had good interviews with like a Pakistani person that, you know, got droned and he was, um, pushing back against Iraq during the Obama times. Yeah. Um, okay, one one more question. There's, a, there's a wing. There's a wing of like of like journalists who are you know adversarial. It's kind of like the Intercept crowd, where they're really good. Yeah. On like, like they're very good on the drone wars, uh, and they were opposed <laughs> to the occupation of Iraq. But after that, that's kind of where it stops. Like about the dirty war in Syria, the most one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive, covert CIA dirty wars in history. They have nothing to say, or even they they whitewash it. So it's like, yes, they'll, they, they allow themselves to criticize drone warfare in uh, Yemen and Somalia. And that's great. But that's like, uh, to me, uh, it's, it's, um, it's only one component of a, a U.S. war machine. 
and it's not nearly the, not nearly the most harmful. Um, and there are elements of the military that oppose it. So it's actually like there are, it's pretty safe because you have some people in the side of the national security establishment who are who don't like the drone warfare program to begin with. So it's not a very difficult issue, I think, to take a stand on. Oh, interesting. Thanks. Um, okay, one more question, if you have time, or sure, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, I. So regarding the pushback with, um, you know, with the rally from other sectors of the left, uh, sometimes you're like very. I feel like you're very generous on your understanding of why a lot of people like don't go into um, enough foreign policy stuff. Um, so like, how, where do you put the line? I think, uh, because it's, uh, maybe it's part of the intellectual left falls for that, maybe in a populist way, uh, to actually never, never focus enough in the war stuff. And then, and then kind of, uh, taint the people that focus on anti-war as, um, as like, I don't know, privileged or something, or not focused enough on domestic issues. Um, and I, I, that's a little bit what happens with the squad. And, um, yeah, I don't know if they fall for the, for the propaganda so much or, or why they're so bad at it, but uh, with foreign policy. Um, but I, I wonder if you have like, if you've had instances where you feel like a solidarity between domestic issues and foreign policy has proved a little better uh you know you know what i'm saying not really I'm, I'm i don't really follow oh i'm sorry uh i i just mean like there's a for example uh there's a new uh rally coming right in march 18 um anti-war but uh organized by uh different groups uh that were like very that were kind of uh What's the word? Uh, mean to the <laughs> Rage Against the War Machine uh, uh, rally, and um, I don't know. I guess I I feel like sometimes they everyone like closes ranks, and that makes the the left uh, more fractioned. And, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I got you. So yeah, yeah um, there were people on the left who didn't want to join the Rage Against the War Machine rally because that was co-organized with the Libertarian Party. And there are elements of the Libertarian Party um, that have said a bunch of reactionary things uh, and uh, are opposed to, you know, he uh, health care for all and um, aren't good on LGBTQ rights and all those things. And so um, it got divisive. And um, I thought that was too bad because I think when you're talking about something as important as nuclear war and militarism, if you can find common ground with people who you disagree with, I, I think that's good to find common ground, even if you disagree on, on other issues. And, um, and uh, so now there's going to be another rally organized by answer on March 18th. And, you know, I'll be going to that and I support it. I just think it's too bad that, uh, you know, yeah. another, like another anti-war rally like was undermined or over domestic issues. But, but I understand, you know, like some people feel strongly about not compromising on anything and that's fine. I just think, personally, I think that's not a good strategy over the long term is you have to meet people where they're at and not everyone's going to have the same views as, as, a, as a lefty on everything. I think there needs to be some space for that. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm just like trying to find where to put the energy on, on working through that. <laughs> but anyways, thanks. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Okay, Marco, go ahead. Hi, Aaron, big fan. You do great work. Um, I'm curious about your new book. Uh, I'm interested in the history between Nazi Germany and the U.S., the sort of uh, collaboration with companies like IBM, Coca-Cola, um, and then you have Operation Paperclip after the war where the Nazis sort of joined the U.S. government. So, like, when I put on my tinfoil hat, I kind of imagine this war in Ukraine being the Nazi influence invading Russia. You know, um, Russia was invaded through Ukraine in both world wars and by Napoleon. So I'm curious if you think there's anything to this connection, if there's anything to that history, like are we seeing Nazi Germany attacking Russia in the modern era? Um, what do you think about all that? Uh, certainly there's been a U.S. alliance with 
the Bandera movement of Ukraine, which is neo-Nazi since the um, Second World War. Uh, they've long been seen as allies, and uh, there's been some collaboration from Western intelligence and uh, between Western intelligence and the and the Banderite movement. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I, I think the U.S. is siding with its traditional allies inside Ukraine, which are neo-Nazis. Uh, and Operation Paperclip, which basically was a this Western operation to uh, to you know basically give cover to Nazi war criminals. Um, I don't know the extent of the Ukraine tie, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is one. I just, but I, I don't know enough about that specific angle to say. Is the U.S. the Fourth Reich? I mean, you know, we're murdering millions of people around the world. Um, I think that the Nazis were a unique level of insanity and evil, and the U.S. is certainly a um, a global empire that has committed, you know unspeakable atrocities, but... Um, well, Aaron, tell me an atrocity the Nazis did that the U.S. didn't. Uh, the U.S. didn't run um, uh, gas chambers uh, exterminating, you know... Uh, the U.S. exterminated 100-plus million indigenous people. They didn't use gas chambers, but how is that, how is that not worse than what yeah, they did? Yeah, the, the U.S. certainly committed genocide in uh against against indigenous people yes um i uh you know look maybe it's because of my own personal history is you know coming from survivors of the holocaust that uh i see the nazis as a unique evil um that's just where i'm at uh, uh and you know my unique history is coming from the indigenous people and I yeah i got gotcha. you so there you go yeah <laughs> uh, one yeah. last thing Aaron, before i go i love it when you interview your dad not just because you both are great people but because you wear almost the same clothes and i have a kid and i think it's so cute thanks thanks, thanks. okay all right well thank you thanks for the call okay uh next caller go ahead hey aaron hi there how's it going uh good thanks so what's the What's the main thing you're you're looking to get out of this uh, Colin stuff? What's your uh, 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 the main thing is letting people call in and share their opinions and questions. Yeah, I love it. Um, I've seen you for a long time. I've seen you, and it's really weird. I get a chance to talk with you right now. I'm a little starstruck, to be honest. Okay, well, it's great to have you here, uh, and don't be starstruck because uh, I'm just a guy. Well, I- on the I can't help of the light. <laughs> I'm like poor guy, you know. I can't help it. I'm a little starstruck. Um, but like uh, progressive status, yeah. I I, I wanted just to make the note. Like, I met a lot of people. I've met so many people like this that kind of fall into a lot of the same tropes as the right. Actually, to where they can almost be classified as the right. Who are quite as soon as you start mentioning utopic ideas or paradise ideas anything that actually has anything to do with changing the economy for the better, they suddenly start to get all crazy with politics and this and that. And you start to really break it down of what really needs to be done, which to me is quite simple. Let's get, get rid of the usury. You know, war is, war is a function of capitalism as far as I'm concerned. So a lot of these, a lot of these war, anti-war stuff for me, I just look at it as like, if you're not anti-capitalist, you're not really anti-war. And I, ha- I hate to say that, but if, at this point, if you're not anti-capitalist, how can you really, like in this day and age of edu- uh, information, how can one really be anti-war if they're not anti-capitalist? That's my big thing. Uh, that's a question I'd like to pose. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for the call. And Trevor, you will be our last caller. Go ahead. And Trevor, if you're there. Do you hear me? There you go. Yeah. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, great to great to be here. And thank you for all your work. Um, calling from Switzerland. I uh, just want to make a comment. There's a lot of sentiment here as Switzerland's supposedly neutral position. Uh, there's a lot of um, uh, kind of activism towards uh, uh, 
Swiss armaments or munitions, ammunition being being uh, that's that's sold into other countries that that could be, it's actually forbidden to be put into a war zones, and there's kind of like this there's a rising kind of a voice for people to for the government or to allow that these munitions be sent to Ukraine, and which is uh, directly against the. The the, uh, the law. Um, just wanted to know what you were, your thoughts on that. Your thoughts on neutrality and and whatnot. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so you're you're in Switzerland. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think uh, this war has really changed Europe for the worst. Uh, in, um, and, uh, but I do see that the Swiss have tried to hold on to their policy of, uh, of not exporting weapons to a war zone, but I know they're under a lot of pressure for that. And, um, the trend in Europe is to go toward, you know, U S dominance. And so I wouldn't be surprised if, if, if Switzerland, um, caves. Uh, certainly what's happened in Germany is unbelievable to me, the way Germany has been bullied into being a U.S. lapdog and sabotaging its own economy in the process. And um, so I haven't followed what was happening with, with Switzerland. I just know that there's been some complaints about it being an obstacle to the to the proxy war. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, it's not much of a problem. I mean, all the media is pro-Ukraine, pro-war, yeah. uh, the mainstream media anyway. Um yeah, I mean, I think I find what's happening in Germany with the German government actually also appalling. Yeah, it's shocking. It's it's really shocking. Um, and uh, luckily for Olaf Scholz, when he came to visit Biden just the other day, they kept him away from the media, so there was no press conference, which is good because you know somebody might have asked him, "Hey, what do you, how do you feel about the president blowing up your pipeline? <laughs> and did you know about it?" So. It was smart of them not to do a joint news conference. And and, and uh, about the about the pipeline, there's zero coverage of it. And so skeptical. When I talk to people, they say, "Oh, I say United States obviously bombed it." Yeah. And they're doubting us. Where are your sources? You know, it's 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 yeah. incredible how 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 the this the people here are also you know following following this empire. Uh, 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 word, you know, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing, um, and we're all witness to it. So, Trevor, thank you for the call, and thank uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. I have to wrap it here. I really appreciate you spending some time with me today. Hope to have a great.